Welcome to Scripture Uncovered, a podcast on the Bible brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. This week, we're bringing you the final podcast recorded on the road in the footsteps of St. Paul in Greece. Dr. Creasy teaches live from Ephesus. For decades, Dr. Creasy has been leading his Logos students on amazing adventures, studying Scripture in the places where the stories occur, bringing the Bible to life. In fact, we just announced an upcoming teaching tour in the footsteps of Jesus, Israel Highlights, from January 4th to 12th, 2019. Visit logosbiblestudy.com slash Israel, that's logosbiblestudy.com slash I-S-R-A-E-L, for more information and to secure your place. Now, it's time for the program. Here's Dr. Creasy, live from Ephesus. We toured Ephesus this morning, and it was really an extraordinary sight, uh, an extraordinary uh, visit to Ephesus. One of the great archaeological sites that we see in the footsteps of Paul, either in Greece or Turkey. It's like the, the jewel in the crown. And Paul spent three years, almost three years, at Ephesus. Now we had such a good guide today, really fine, I thought, that I, I didn't want to interject and interrupt and, and break the flow of things. So we got this room instead to talk about Ephesus uh, for today. So let me begin creating context for our story. Paul, as we know, went on three missionary journeys. First missionary journey, what dates? 46 to 48, right? Through down from Antioch to Cyprus, across Cyprus, up to Antalya, Perga, Pisidian Antioch, Iconia, Lystrum, and Derby and then back again. First missionary journey. Paul, Barnabas, and Mark set out from Antioch. Mark cut and ran in Perga, but they went from place to place to place for two years founding churches at the various locations. And that was pretty effective. Uh, two years later, well, two years later, AD 50, after the Council of Jerusalem, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and check on the churches we founded and see how they're doing. And that seemed like a really good idea. But Paul and Barnabas had a big falling out over Mark, who had deserted them in Perga. And they part company. Paul and Barnabas, as far as I know, never speak to each other again after that. Barnabas takes Mark and he heads for Cyprus to retrace the first journey. Paul took Silas from Antioch and went the exact opposite direction. And I can imagine Paul saying to Barnabas, and I hope we don't meet up in the middle because I'm <laughs> going to punch you in the nose. Right? But you know, after everything they've been through, they never speak to each other again. There's no record of it at all. Anyhow, Paul and Silas do the first missionary journey in reverse order until they get to Pisidian Antioch. And Paul becomes ill. And we talked about this as beginning of the second missionary journey. They, instead of going south to Perga and then Antalya, Cyprus, and back home, they go north over the mountains looking for medical care for Paul. They find it finally in Troas, where they meet Dr. Luke. And from Troas, they sail to Neapolis, where we were, and they set foot on the continent of Europe for the first time. They meet Lydia and her friends at Philippi, where we visited, and then they go on to Berea, where we visited, and then trouble follows Paul from Thessalonica to Berea, 
they get him on board a ship and send him to Athens. Now, we drove to Athens in a very long drive. <laughs> he sailed to Athens by ship. He probably got there faster than we did. But in Athens, Paul speaks to the Areopagus. I call it the faculty club of Athens. When we get back to Athens, we'll visit the Acropolis and the Parthenon and where Paul spoke to the Areopagus at Mars Hill, and we'll talk about it when we get there. But from Athens, Paul then went to Corinth. And Corinth, he spent 18 months, and he founded a church there. Ultimately, it was a very troubled church. He writes two epistles back to them later on. Five correspondences in total go back and forth, and I taught a class on that that's in the online classroom on the Corinthian correspondence. A troubled church indeed, but 18 months in Corinth, and then he left. And he sailed from Corinth, Sancria, the harbor on the east side of the Isthmus. He sailed to Ephesus, straight across the Aegean to Ephesus. Now all the time, first missionary journey, second missionary journey, Paul is going from place to place to place to place, founding churches, and then moving on. He'd found a church, get leadership in place, move on. That was effective, but it was not efficient. And when Paul sets into Ephesus for the very first time, fourth largest city in the Roman Empire, the largest deep water port on the west coast of Asia Minor, and one of the three maritime hubs, Antioch, Ephesus, and Corinth. When Paul got to Ephesus, right in the center, he saw opportunity, and his whole strategy changed. Rather than go from place to place to place, Paul thought, I'll go to Ephesus, and I'll let the people come to me. And that's exactly what he did. He went home to Antioch, did his laundry, checked his emails, and headed across the interior to Ephesus. When he arrives, that's where he'll stay for some time, almost three years. And Luke writes at the end of that time, everyone in Asia Minor had heard the gospel. So Ephesus was key. It was a change in strategy, and it allowed Paul to take the message to thousands and thousands of people, not place by place by place, but one place and let them take the message out into the empire, which they did. So Ephesus, let me read to you the story from Acts. And I'll start when Paul is leaving Corinth. So Paul, I'm reading from Acts 18 at verse 18. So Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria, that is Syrian Antioch accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila, whom he met in Corinth. They become very close friends. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Sancria, the port on the east side of the Isthmus, because of a vow that he had taken. When he was in Corinth, things were so difficult that Paul wanted to get out of town. He felt his life was seriously in danger, and he is going to leave. But he had a word with the Lord, and the Lord said, you stay here, Paul, I'll take care of you. And Paul said, okay, I'll make a deal with you. I'll stay here, and I'll continue on, but you've got to be true to your word and watch out for me. And Paul took a Nazarite vow. Nazarite vows, 
Numbers chapter 6. Any person can take a vow of separation to God for a limited period of time. During that time, you don't drink any alcohol, wine, anything. You don't cut your hair. The hair grows. You focus solely on business with God. Your own personal business or greater business. Focus on God. Typically, it's a week or two weeks. There are three lifelong Nazarites in the Bible. Can you name them? Samson, right? Samuel and John the Baptist. Only three. Paul takes a temporary vow. Watch out for me. I'll do the job here in Corinth. After he finishes, he has the hair cut. Not, you don't shave your head. But the hair that grew during the period of the vow is cut and then offered to God as an offering, a symbol of the time that you spent in the Nazarite vow, along with other sacrifices that had to be made as well, only in Jerusalem at the temple. Paul will go back to do that later on. So Paul makes that Nazarite vow. He has the haircut at Sancria. Now they arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went uh, into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined because Paul was on the way home to Syrian Antioch. He said, no, I can't do it now. But as he left, he promised, I'll come back if it's God's will. I'll be back. And then he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea Maritima on, on the Mediterranean coast of Israel, okay, that's where he put in that he went home up to Antioch. Now, after spending time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place, all throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia. So after getting to Antioch, doing his laundry, checking his email, he set off across the interior again. I imagine visiting the churches from the first journey and then over the mountains into Galatia and then from Galatia on to Ephesus. Meanwhile, while Paul was in Syrian Antioch, a Jew named Apollo, a native of Alexandria, Egypt, came to Ephesus. He was a very learned man with a thorough knowledge of scripture. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and he spoke with great fervor and he taught about Jesus accurately, though he only knew about John the Baptist. So he didn't know that Jesus had come, that he had a three-year public ministry, that he had been crucified, buried, and raised. He knew about the message of John the Baptist, paving the way, getting ready for the Messiah. And that's what he was preaching. He spoke boldly in the synagogue with Priscilla. And, uh, when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home. So Priscilla and Aquila hear Apollos, who was a really good speaker. And with a name like Apollos, he was handsome, tan, nice hair, you know, TV evangelist type. You know. And uh, they, they hear him teaching. And they invite him to their home. And they tell him, you know, that was a really good talk you gave. And, but we need to update you a bit. Really? Yes. The Messiah did come. Jesus 
and he had a three-year public ministry and he was crucified crucified buried and raised get out of here yes and they told him the whole story Apollos checked it out and found it was correct so he vigorously defended the gospel there in Ephesus then he decided I'm going to leave here and go to Corinth so he did he went to Corinth now chapter 19 while Apollos was in Corinth Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus there he found some disciples some believers huh Paul always went to a place where no other apostle had been and he finds believers in Ephesus there weren't any when he went through the first time and it's only months later where they come from he found some believers and he said excuse me did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed and they said the Holy who they had, they had no idea they never heard of this and Paul said uh, well what baptism did you receive John oh John's baptism was a baptism of repentance toward the forgiveness of sins but it's been fulfilled he told the people to believe in the one coming after him and on hearing this that he had come they were baptized again into Christ so when Paul placed his hands on them the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke in tongues and they performed uh, just as and, and, and just as he promised there were only about 12 about 12 men so Apollos didn't have a whole lot of people after he got the message he stayed for a short time then went to Corinth but there were 12 believers and now they're full-fledged believers if you will so Paul is in Ephesus all these people traveling through and we were there we we saw the number of tourists coming in right it was like that in Paul's day but they were merchants they were traders they were travelers and it is a great place for him to be so Paul as he typically did started at the synagogue now remember he couldn't do that in Philippi because there weren't enough Jews to have a synagogue but there were in Ephesus and it was probably in that marketplace area the Agora which was by the water probably in that area he entered the synagogue he spoke boldly there for three months arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God but some of them became obstinate they refused to believe and publicly maligned the way so Paul left them now in Corinth when he was teaching at the synagogue and he got in trouble there what did he do he shook the dust off his feet and he went next door to the home of a believer Titus Justice and he opened the windows and he preached loudly so they could hear him in the synagogue next door <laughs> but here he doesn't do that three months he lasted in the synagogue it's a record for Paul but he then went to the public lecture hall of Tyrannus where he spoke every day every day between 11 and 4 in the Mediterranean countries people work in the morning about 11 o'clock or so the shops close for a while siesta time 
right? And then they reopen later in the afternoon and then are open into the night. The afternoons are hot. In Ephesus, they're really hot. We're here in May. I've been here in July in Ephesus. 105 degrees, 90% humidity, it is hot. So Paul would speak during that time in the afternoon in the lecture hall of Tyrannus, siesta time. And God did extraordinary things. All these people would hear him. And Paul's teaching was accompanied by miracles. Now, no person can perform a miracle. No person. Only God can perform a miracle. And if he chooses to perform a miracle through you, it suggests that you have a very intimate relationship with God. And the greater the miracle, the more implied intimacy. With Paul, God did extraordinary things through him. So that even the handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. So imagine, some of you have been sneezing. Imagine if I took your Kleenex, stuffed it in my pocket after you used it, and then I took it over to Jim, who was not feeling well, and I touched him with it, and he got suddenly well. That would be pretty cool. <laughs> now, some Jews who, were around, uh, who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus. They had seen Paul doing this, and they thought, I could make a buck doing that. So they tried to do the same thing. And this is such a great story. They would say, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you, come out. Now one day, they were doing this. Sylvia, in the name of Jesus, you evil spirit in her, come out. And she said, Paul I know, Jesus I know, who are you? Right? And the man leapt on them, beat the living daylights out of them, and they ran out naked. He <laughs> tore their clothes off and everything. <laughs> well, he gave them such a beating, they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. And when this came to be known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in very high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. And when they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachma. In this way, the word of the Lord spread quickly. Now, I, I find that to be problematic. Those who practiced sorcery, well, they weren't like witches. We saw the Library of Celsus in Ephesus. That library was not there when Paul was. It was built in AD 132. So much later. But you wouldn't build the third largest library in the Roman Empire if there was nothing to put in it. Right? So Ephesus was, was clearly a center of learning, a place that appreciated learning and culture. They had a theater that seated 25,000 people. It was a well-educated 
cosmopolitan city. The fourth largest city in the Roman Empire, one of only three cities to have street lighting at night. We saw the underground sewage piping under the streets, hot and cold indoor running water in the wealthy area. It was a fabulous place, and people had a love of learning. If who were the people called sorcerers? They were scientists, philosophers, people who had knowledge of greater things. The scrolls would have been scrolls of philosophy, science, uh, astronomy, much like in Alexandria, Egypt. Hypatia, who was a brilliant woman in the ancient times, who calculated the elliptical movements of the planets around the sun was accused of sorcery and leading young minds astray. And she was attacked, stripped naked, and skinned to death. She was accused of sorcery because of her knowledge of such things. And I think that's what happened in Ephesus. The books that would go into that library were books of that type. And people who were ignorant viewed them as bad things. Now, Paul had a fabulous education, not just in Judaism, but in classical learning, classical literature as well. Paul, when he's at Athens, and when we get there, I'll go through the story, he's asked to speak to the Areopagus uh, ad hoc. There's nothing planned. He goes, he speaks. And while he's speaking, he quotes from memory a 6th century BC Cretan poet. Who can do that? Right? It would be like I'm talking to uh, uh, Sylvia, and she quotes to me a 14th century French Provencal poet in French. <laughs> You've got to have a really good education to do that. Well, Paul could do that. Paul was a very well-educated person. You read Romans. Paul writes Romans, AD 57. It is a structured, formal, scholastic diatribe, a formal argument in the form of a scholastic diatribe, point by point. When he writes to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians, I'm teaching that right now in our classes uh, back home. When he writes Ephesians, standard opening sentence, Sentence number two, 202 words with multiple levels of parallel subordination. It is a dazzling rhetorical work. The whole six-chapter epistle is brilliant. This is not some bozo who doesn't know classical learning, rhetoric, and literature. So Paul knew that. Paul witnessed the book burning. And I think Paul is very upset by that. Fifth 50,000 drachma. How much were those books worth? In today's terms, $10 million worth of books from what would become the third largest library in the ancient world. Someone like Paul would not appreciate that. And I think at that point, he began to think, these are totally unintended consequences. This is not what I meant. And Paul, when he witnessed the book burning, decided to leave Ephesus. 
It was his most successful missionary journey. Why would he leave? Unless something really traumatic happened. And I think the book burning was the thing. So Paul witnesses the book burning and resolves to leave. After that happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. Now pause there. Jerusalem, why would he go there? Well, check in with the other apostles, perhaps. He had to make sacrifices, animal sacrifices, to end the Nazarite vow. You could only do that in Jerusalem. So he's planning on going from Ephesus to Jerusalem. That would be get on board ship and sail east. But where did he go? Macedonia, back up to Philippi. Who lives in Philippi? Lydia. Who's Paul going to talk to? Lydia. He goes back to Macedonia, to Philippi, and then makes his way around to Corinth, visiting churches along the way, and then sails back to Caesarea Maritima from Corinth. Corinth to Ephesus to Caesarea Maritima on the maritime routes. So he gets back, he's on the way back to, uh, to Jerusalem. Before he left, however, that's when the riot breaks out in Ephesus. And we went through that with our guide on site in Ephesus. All the people gathered in that theater, and as one voice, they're all shouting, what? Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Let me hear it. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Oh, wimpy. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. For two hours. And finally, the whole thing breaks up and off they go. So that was Paul's time in Ephesus. Luke writes that it was the most successful missionary journey. Everyone in Asia Minor had heard the gospel as a result. Paul will never, as far as we know, never go back to Ephesus. Why? I can only attribute it to that book burning episode. Ten million dollars. It's like going to the Huntington Library and setting it on fire. You know, it was just fundamentally wrong. And uh, Paul presumably never goes back. Paul will write to the church in Ephesus between 60 and 62, Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, again, which I'm teaching right now in our live classes. That epistle, I think we can make a very good argument that it was not an epistle to the Ephesians, but rather, it's not structured as an epistle. It's structured as a homily, a sermon. And I, I'm pretty certain myself that he wrote that for the churches in Asia Minor that he founded and all those other churches that people had founded as they were traveling through. And he writes a circular homily, one addressed to Ephesus, another which is mentioned in the early literature to the Laodiceans, another church in, Ephesus, in Asia Minor, he wrote it, it was sent out, and then copied and sent to the church, other churches in Asia Minor, where it was read as a homily in those churches. I think I have a pretty good argument for that, and I'm doing that in our classes right now. But in Ephesians, which was meant for all those churches in Asia Minor that had been founded, 
he's not introducing anything new. He's commending them for what they already know. And he's reinforcing what they already know. And in the second half of Ephesians, he says, now here's what you're to do as a result of what you know. So commending them for what they do know in chapters 1 through 3, telling them what they need to do as a result in chapters 4 through 6. So that's Ephesians. And it was meant for other churches as well. The only other place we encounter the church in Ephesus is in the book of Revelation. Now, we visited Mary's house in Ephesus. Was Mary there? Probably. There's no solid evidence for that. But she was given to John at the foot of the cross. John was most certainly in Ephesus. He didn't found the church. Paul did. But he was there sometime after A.D. 62. Because when Paul writes his prison epistles, there's no mention of John in Ephesus. If, if he had been there, it would have been mentioned. How could he not? He's one of the apostles. So John goes to Ephesus sometime after A.D. 62, perhaps. If that's when he went and Mary was with him, how old would Mary have been had she been in Ephesus, say, A.D. 60? Well, A.D. 60, 60 years, Jesus' life, right? And how old was Mary when she gave birth to Jesus? Maybe 14, 15. So she would be at minimum 75 years old when she got there with John. And she may well have. The house that we visit, I think, is a very special place. On our, oftentimes, on our tours, when we go to Mary's house and we have a priest with us, we celebrate Mass there in the outside chapel. But uh, it's a wonderful spot, beautiful spot to remember an event, to remember the person of Mary and her role in our faith. But John was there in Ephesus. He's exiled to the island of Patmos, where we're headed now. Either during the reign of Nero, 64 to 68, or Domitian in the late 80s and early 90s. You can make a good case for either. I tend to come down in the late 80s, early 90s. John is exiled to Patmos, and there he has a vision. And let me turn over to it and show you how it starts. The book of Revelations, chapter 1, at verse 1. There we go. The revelation from Jesus Christ, from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. Now pause for a moment. The revelation, the Greek word is apocalypse, apoc apocalypse, which means what? Disaster? No. Unveiling, to take off the veil, to reveal something otherwise not known. And it's from Jesus Christ. And it's for his servants to show them what must take place soon. Not a thousand years from now, not three thousand years, imminently, imminently. So if we're looking at, say, AD 90 for Revelation, John on Patmos, and we'll go to the place where tradition holds, he wrote this, if it's AD 90, 
Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, that all these things he talked about in the Olivet Discourse, his return and all the things that would follow with his return, he said, this generation will not pass away until these things happen. Well, if you were with Jesus in AD 32 and he said that, this generation will not pass away until all these things happen. If I said that now, when are these things going to happen? Pretty soon, they're imminent. Everyone, everyone, 100% of the early church believed that Jesus would return in their lifetime. Now we're in AD 90. How many people living in AD 90 had actually seen or heard Jesus? Not many. We're at the very tail end of that generation. And John is among the last of that generation, the last living apostle. What's going to happen in Revelation, in John's mind, is imminent. Within a very short time. And sure enough, during the time of Domitian, the persecution was severe. It looked for all the world like this was going to occur. In my course on Revelation, which is in the online classroom, some of you have been through live, what's happening in the second half of the first century in the Roman Empire is catastrophic, starting with the reign of Nero and all the way up until AD 100. Just one thing after another. The Great Jewish Revolt, 66 to 72, in which 1.2 million Jews are killed. Jerusalem is destroyed. The temple is gone. The people are exiled. Mount Vesuvius erupts in AD 79, blanketing this whole part of the world in ash. All these things are happening. There are four emperors in a matter of 18 months, each one being succeeded through assassination or suicide. Multiple things going on. It looked, if you were living then, it looks like the end. And that's what John is writing about. So he gets this vision. And he's told by the risen and glorified Christ to write a letter to each of seven churches in Asia Minor. The first one being the church in Ephesus. So who's the leader of the church in Ephesus at this time? John, right? So write a letter to the church in Ephesus, your church, John. All right. And here's what you're to write. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. John's thinking, thank you, Lord. Appreciate that. It has been a lot of hard work. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles and are not and you've shown them to be false. I like that. There were people traveling around. The church at this time is a growth industry, right? It's growing very, very quickly. And there were people who saw a way to make a lot of money with this, as we've already seen. You know, come out of him. People could make a lot of money. And they would show up in a place like Ephesus. And so-and-so is going to be speaking tonight. And so-and-so gets up, I'll be him. And I say, I'm very happy to be here with you folks. You know, we're in extraordinary times. And the Lord is alive and well among us. 
When I walked with him on the roads of Galilee, you walked with him? I did. I'm humble to say so. And I remember when we stopped at uh, right outside of Magdala, where Mary Magdalene lived at the foot of the Arbel Cliff. And I remember him saying, and I tell you all these stories about what I did with the Lord in Galilee. And here's old John, like 90 years old now, sitting there. And when I finish, his hand goes up. John, put your hand up there. Hand goes up. Um, yes. Did you, you mean you, you walked on the roads of Galilee with him? I'm proud to say I did. No kidding. And you heard him say this at Magdala? Yeah, I did. And John says, that's funny. I don't remember you being there. <laughs> you, you showed them to be phony apostles. You showed them to be phonies. You've persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. Seven commendations, good things you've done. Yet, I hold this against you. Now imagine the risen and glorified Christ saying this to John. I hold this against you. You've forsaken your first love. You've forsaken your first love. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. You've forsaken your first love. It was John, who was almost like a little brother to Jesus. He nicknamed him one of the sons of thunder. Where did that nickname come from? Sons of thunder. Well, it means they're the exact opposite. Or, or maybe there was an episode around the campfire like that in Blazing Saddles. <laughs> John sat at the Last Supper on Jesus' left, Peter on the right, and fell asleep with his head on Jesus' shoulder. John writes in 1 John that he whom we have seen with our own eyes, he saw the Lord Jesus, whom we have heard, he knew what his voice sounded like, whom we have gazed upon. When Jesus was asleep around the campfire, John gazed upon him, just watched him. John gave his life for Jesus. All the other apostles had died. John's the only one left. I hold this against you, John. You've forsaken the love you had at first. I, I've worked with a whole lot of pastors. I've been doing this for 30 years. And in San Diego, we have, what, 98 parishes, I think, in San Diego. I've taught in about a third of them. I know many of the, of the pastors quite well. When you start out, as a young man and you go to seminary, you're going to be a priest, you're, you're doing it because you are totally, absolutely in love with God and Christ in, in, in a profound way. And you go all through seminary and you're ordained and, and then you become an assistant pastor at a big church somewhere and you kind of learn the ropes of parish life. And 
then you work hard, you get promoted to associate pastor, and eventually you get to, you're the pastor of a church yourself, or you're the pastor of a big parish or a really important parish. A lot of priests and ministers in their late 50s to mid 60s, they've been doing this for a long time. And a lot of them have lost that love, that first love, the thing that brought them there. And think of any relationship, any of your relationships. Remember when, you, when, when the two of you first fell in love, the, the, the fiery, romantic, wonderful thing it was? And, and, and now, sometimes you wake up at night and you look over and you go, what was I thinking? You, know? <laughs> uh, you lost that first love. And, and the risen and glorified Christ is saying to John, personally, here, you've lost your first love. Get it back. Get it back. Consider how far you've fallen. And do the things you did at first. And if you don't repent, I'll come and remove your lampstand. The lampstand is the church. John, you got a big, important ministry here in Ephesus. A church founded by Paul, a big church, an important church in the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire, and you're the last living apostle. But you lost that first love. And if you don't get it back, I'm going to take the church from you and give it to somebody else. What do you think John felt about that? Not very good. Well, these seven letters are meant as cover letters to the main body of Revelation, which begins with chapter 4. After this, after writing the seven letters, I looked up and then you have the vision go on. But the vision from 4 to 22 was accompanied by a cover letter to these seven churches in Asia Minor and sent to them. Well, we're on the way to Patmos. We'll be there soon, and we'll see the place where John wrote Revelation. The place where the risen and glorified Christ said to John, you've lost your first love. Get it back. And I think one of the wonderful things about our pilgrimage together, whether it's to Israel or the footsteps of Paul in Turkey, footsteps of Paul in Greece, whatever it might be. We've all been around for a pretty long time. Look at the age group, right? We, we've all been in Christ for a long time. Have you lost your first love? Is it the way it used to be? And the Lord's saying, get it back. And so often, at the end of our tour, a lot of people get it back. Because you've been there. You've walked in the footsteps of Paul. You've stood on Patmos where John wrote Revelation. This is real. You know, and we get so caught up in the other stuff. But we have the opportunity now to get it back. And that's what he's asking us to do. So I'm looking forward to Patmos. Hope you are too. Thank you. You've been listening to Scripture Uncovered, brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. 
Don't forget to check out our upcoming tour in the footsteps of Jesus, Israel Highlights, in January 2019. Places are booking fast, so visit logosbiblestudy.com Israel to reserve your place now. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.